good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, open them to Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is one of those psalms that sincerely has made its way into the very fabric of our society. You can find the most godless television show that you can imagine, and in it, if there be a funeral, they will read publicly Psalm 23 and claim it as if it is some arbitrary claim that it has some ground for them, though they not be in Christ. But what I hope to do this morning is to reclaim Psalm 23 as being noise, meaning that we hear it, and often as we hear Psalm 23, we simply cite in our head, oh, that's Psalm 23, and we rapidly move past it instead of meditating upon the great truths that are presented. There are some scriptures, some texts that have become so common, and rightly so, that we, we have failed to read them as if they bear the same weight as sacred scripture. We hear passages like Psalm 23 or perhaps passages like John 3 and we think to ourselves, oh, that's the Bible. It's being cited. John 3, you know, that anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will have life. Or you read Psalm 23 and you say, ah, the Lord is my shepherd. And you quickly make your way past that without ever meditating upon the glory of the fact that Jesus is our good shepherd. And saints, as I have prepared over the last week to, to think through and to meditate upon this in my mind has been the simple refrain that I have found to bring comfort in the midst of the best possible moments of this week and in the worst, just the simple refrain, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it's my hope this morning to go with David as he is meditating upon these truths. Last, uh, the last few weeks as we've walked through the Psalms, you've perhaps noticed that there are Psalms that are given to prayer. They're given to and calling out on the name of the Lord. And in the very same sense, there are Psalms that are given to meditation, meaning that there is a deep pause within the soul as one thinks about and truly meditates upon the truths of who God is. And that is where we find ourselves this morning as we look at Psalm 23. So it is my hope that we we would meditate upon the meditation, the, the, the Holy Spirit-inspired meditation of David so that we might all the more deeply rejoice in the reality that Christ is our good shepherd. And that means, consequently, that we shall not want. And so with that, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Psalm 23 Starting in verse 1 and making our way through, the, through verse 6, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Psalm chapter 23, starting in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, what a blessed truth that he who is transcendent is imminent as our shepherd. 
And Father, would you forgive us, even as we approach this, for failing to grasp these great truths. Oh, what a balm to the soul they are. And Father, would you remind us of the sufficiency of our shepherd this morning? Lord, may we never question his leadership, his guidance, his strength, his leading. And Lord, may we always be glad to stay in step behind him, knowing that he is the true and best shepherd. Lord, that any symbols of that here are simply shadows, but the true substance belongs to you. And would you help us to take comfort in your rod and in your staff? Would you help us to eat, the, eat in the pasture that you have prepared for us? Would you help us to drink deeply of the waters that you have given us? And Lord, may we know that we will arrive safely home and that as we arrive safely home, we will dwell in that house forever. Lord, bind these truths to our soul that we might walk through the valley of the shadow of death with great confidence, giving no fear, but a deep dependence on our God. It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 23 has two major hangers, if you will, two major points that we want to think about as we walk through this. And the very first is the introduction, simply verse one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And the second is in verse three, where he says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So if I could confess to you, my my whole intention this morning is to fill up the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, to where we meditate upon that truth the very same way that David did. The reality is that this psalm simply begins with a phrasing, with with a title being given to the one who is leading David. And David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And everything that comes after that introductory phrase flows from the reality that he is meditating upon. And this is why I think the the simple meditation of the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is such a loaded meditation. It is full to the brim. And you can imagine David being a shepherd understands this full well. And as he's meditating upon this phrase, as he's seeing, even in his own shepherding care of a flock, as he's seeing sheep going astray, as he's seeing them wounded, as he's seeing them taken and destroyed, he is even considering the fact that he himself is a frail shepherd. That he has failed, I assure you, by the time that David finished being a shepherd, he had lost one or more sheep. That he had done harm to one or more sheep. That he had not led appropriately. That he had led them through the valley of the shadow of death to such a degree that many perhaps were even lost in that era. David was not a perfect shepherd. And we say with absolute confidence, David most certainly is not the good shepherd. David instead, in all of his offices, in him being a shepherd and then him being a king, he recognizes a deep reality that he is not the par excellence version of this. That as he meditates upon his kingship, he does not say that he is the king. He does not say that he is the shepherd. In every seat that David sat in, he recognized that there was one better. It's almost as if David understood himself to be a shadow. He understood that past me, there is something far better. What a a weighty task. And so he considers this and he says, I am not the shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd. And so how can we understand the introductory phrase of this psalm? First, we need to recognize that we are speaking of the transcendent God. Hear me, the divine name is used in this first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. Immediately what comes to mind is the covenant God, the one who is the creator of all things, the one who is altogether transcendent, meaning he is not like us. 
He is holy. He is radiant. He is pure. There is no blemish nor fault nor failure in him. He is eternal and inexhaustible and exalted above all things. He is perfect. We are not like him. It makes me immediately think of that passage in Romans 11. We are not like him. His ways are higher than our ways. Our wisdom fails in totality in comparison to his. Our wisdom is foolish. Our wisdom is not in comparison to him. And so how does David begin this psalm? He begins this psalm meditating upon the transcendent covenant God. And then he, he ascribes to him a lowly office. You see, we often consider, and I think appropriately so, we consider the eminence of our God. Dear saints, he is near to us. But there is a uniqueness in our understanding of that when we understand him also to be transcendent. He is not like us. That in the midst of this perhaps tension of him being the the transcendent, holy, righteous, unstained, unblemished God, immortal, immortal, and eternal, that he is simultaneously the shepherd. And perhaps it is that word in our own biblical terminology is rich with meaning that we misunderstand the true condescension in the term. That he comes to dwell with his sheep. That he is not resting in palaces. Instead, he comes to dwell with us. To lead us, to guide us, as we will see here in a moment. The Lord is our shepherd. This transcendent one condescends to be our shepherd. And not only do we understand that he condescends to be our shepherd, but he has inspired that he be called that. You think the transcendent one would perhaps first and foremost delight, and he is the king. And that he is the supreme one, is that he is the Lord of all the earth. And all of these things are to be true, but it is very unique to our God that he is not ashamed to be called our shepherd. In the very same way that Christ was not ashamed to be called our brother. This is the transcendent God who draws near, who is imminent and takes on this lowly task of being a shepherd to his people. We must note that he delights to be called this all throughout the pages of scripture. And as it were, one of the very few I am statements in the New Testament is linked to the shepherd, the good shepherd. So we note that it is the transcendent God who is our imminent shepherd. Now that leads us perhaps to ask the question, why is it that the term shepherd be uniquely sweet? And then we'll get a little bit further down and ask the question, why is it uniquely sweet to us? But when we understand that this transcendent God is near to us and we consider the fact that he is our shepherd, it is uniquely sweet because first and foremost, the shepherds historically know the sheep, that he truly does know his people. And in his knowledge of them, it is not a frail and feeble knowledge. It is an intricate knowledge. He knows every tear that has ever fallen from your eyes. He knows every hair in your head and has determined when they will fall out and if they will. He is near. He knows them. And he knows them not in an arbitrary way, but he knows them by name and has before the name was ever given. He knew your name before your mother gave birth to you. As a matter of fact, he decreed each and every moment of your days before you were even a thought. He knows his sheep. But then secondarily, a shepherd leads his sheep, truly taking them wherever he so designs. And there's a vast distinction here between a good and a bad shepherd. A good shepherd leads his sheep appropriately and always provides that which is necessary to them. And so of our understanding of a shepherd, the reason it rings so sweet is because we understand we have a shepherd who leads us quite appropriately. Further, the shepherd protects the sheep. Imagine there is a sheep, and we can say with absolute confidence, 
that a sheep is of lesser value than a man. No questions asked. The man bears the image of God, created, worthy of equal value, dignity, and respect, and then you have a sheep. And the most interesting thing is, a shepherd will go to war and even perish to make sure that one of lesser value is protected. And he leans in and he makes war ultimately for the protection of the sheep. He fights diligently to keep the sheep and ultimately his aim is to bring each and every sheep safely home. Any good shepherd's intention is to make certain that he does not lose one individual sheep, but each one of them that he knows by name that he has fought for, that he has aimed to protect and lead appropriately will safely make it back into the wonderful and safe fold in which they are called. The term shepherd is a sweet term, especially if you are a sheep. It means that there is one that is protecting you. It means that there is one who is leading you. It means that there is one who will make sure that you arrive safely home. And if you do not arrive safely home, he will go get you. Now, to fill these two terms up, we have transcendent, the the holy, righteous God. And simultaneously, we have this lowly yet beautiful task of shepherding. And that leads us to ask the question, who is the primary one being considered when David is meditating upon the Lord is my shepherd? Biblically, it seems as if there's really no question about this. As a matter of fact, if you place Psalm 23 where it is, on both sides of it, you have rich texts that argue that there is one who is the better and true and perfect shepherd. Listen to what Genesis 49, 24 says. For there is the shepherd simultaneously next to that, the stone of Israel, the rock of Israel. Isaiah 40, chapter 10 through 11 says this. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him and his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Ezekiel 34. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Saints, David is dead when this is written. David is in the tomb, even as we have already heard in our call to worship. David is laying in the tomb. He is actually seeing decay. But in reality, we know that there is a truer David that is coming. And Ezekiel 34, 23 makes it abundantly clear that the one shepherd will be my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Further in Ezekiel 37, 24, a further development of this prophecy. My servant David shall be king over them. And listen to what it goes on to say, and they shall all have one shepherd. These are not distinct offices or distinct men fulfilling two distinct offices. This is one man who is filling the role of king and shepherd. Zechariah 13, 17, that prophecy that we see fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. Who is the struck shepherd? Who is the shepherd that is being made reference to in Zechariah 13 that will have a sword ultimately sheathed in his side? It is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ knew this full well. Saints, hear me. When Jesus read John 23, he understood that he was the good shepherd. Not only did he understand that he was the good shepherd, he had the audacity, the appropriate audacity to say, 
I am the good shepherd. John 10, 11 is abundantly clear. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10, 14, going a bit further, he restates this I am statement. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. He's the good shepherd, saints. If we come to Psalm 23 and we detach the phrase shepherd, if we, and we detach Christ from the phrase shepherd, then we are doing a great disservice to our Bibles. Our Bibles are proclaiming to us with absolute clarity that the good shepherd, the one that David is even meditating upon, is the Lord Jesus Christ. This title is given to him by Peter as well. Peter considers it a number of times, but really two in particular. 1 Peter 2, 25, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. 1 Peter 5, 3, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Saints, we must say that Jesus is our good shepherd. As we come to Psalm 23, we must understand that all of the meditations that are attached to the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, must be attached to the Lord Jesus Christ and his ministry. It must be attached to the way that he leads, to the way that he guides, to the way that he protects. And so let's progress a little bit further into this, shall we? We understand that this is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the transcendent Holy One, and simultaneously the one who is near as our shepherd. But not only can we say that the term shepherd is uniquely sweet, we must say with David that this is uniquely sweet to us. Meaning that the phrase that we find in verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, the word my should not be overlooked. The word my should be a point of great confidence because there is a reality here that is somewhat twofold. First and foremost, I belong to him. Consider for a moment, who belongs to who? Do the sheep belong to the shepherd or does the shepherd belong to the sheep? And perhaps it is you say, and I think appropriately so, it is somewhat a both and, not an either or. But we must first consider that we belong to him. How is it, saints, that you can say with great confidence that, the, that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd that is being considered here? How is it that you can say with absolute confidence, the Lord is my shepherd? And perhaps it is that you would ask yourself on the regular this. Perhaps it is that you would struggle with some forms of insecurity that you do not actually belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced that what David is actually laboring in is encouraging us to meditate first and foremost on the shepherd and then we can consider the sheep. So let's consider first I belong to him. Saints, if you be in the Lord Jesus Christ, you belong to him. You belong to him. And hear me, that word belong is not a weak or frail word. It means he owns you. It means he bought you. And even further than that, it means that he was given to you. John 17, 24, abundantly clear says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, when did he give them to him? Saints, when were you given into the flock of the Lord Jesus Christ? Was it just when you repented and believed? No, saints, you repented and believed because you were given to him from before the world began. The reason that you had faith is because God in his infinite grace elected you and gave you to the Lord Jesus Christ. So he goes on in 1724, I desire that they also whom you have given, given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We belong to him because the father gave us to him. Further, we belong to him by right of his purchase. Saints. We were truly 
bought with a price. And it was not cheap. It was costly, grievously costly. And when we were purchased, we were purchased with the intention to be kept. And when you were purchased, you were brought into the fold of God. You were brought in to be family, to be partakers of the wonderful grace that's found in Christ Jesus. We belong to him first and foremost because God gave him to us. And secondarily, and perhaps a point of wonderful confidence, because he bought us, he redeemed us with his blood. Every sheep of God is blood bought. And that is so unique because in the previous system, every firstborn was bought with the blood of a lamb. And here, saints, we, the flock of God, have been bought with the blood of the firstborn. We've been brought into this wonderful pasture, this wonderful field of grace, and he has purchased us. And ultimately, that means that we belong to him. But because we belong to him, we can consequently say, he belongs to me. In that blessed passage of John 10, when it's working through the concept that Jesus is the good shepherd, there's a, there's a dual phrase. And it's simple that the, that the shepherd knows the sheep. I know my sheep. But there is this beautiful and wonderful phrase, and they know me. How can we know him lest he buy us, lest he bring us into his fold and him set himself over us as the chief shepherd. And we as his sheep can say with absolute confidence, he is mine because he has bought me. He is my shepherd. He is the overseer of my soul. He is my savior. He is my protector. He is my provider. And ultimately he is my king. He is the one who rules and reigns over me. And amazingly, I did not go get him. He came to get me. Little value though I was, and yet he brings me into the fold. And so we say with absolute confidence that he is the good shepherd, that he is the shepherd of the soul, and that he is not only a shepherd, but he is my shepherd. And then that leads us to the phrase, I shall not want. Now, we need to make clear what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that you will never suffer physical want. This does not mean that you will never be hungry, that you will never thirst. That is not at all what is being communicated here. Saints, you can recognize this from the history of Christianity. There have been many saints who have followed their good shepherd to their deaths. That they found themselves beheaded, that they found themselves starving and even sawn in two. I would point your attention to Hebrews chapter 11 that makes this clear. That there are a multiplicity who have been in the folds of Christ who have suffered physical want. This simultaneously does not mean that you will not suffer some form of spiritual hardship or difficulty in life. It is not communicating that to you. It is not saying that you will not want. Therefore, you will never have spiritual difficulties. You will never have to wrestle with particular truths. And it is certainly not communicating that you will never have any form of physical want. Instead, instead, we must understand this to mean that we will never have want of a better shepherd because we have the best. We have the shepherd. There's no want or failure in him. And so we say with absolute confidence that when we say we will not want what we are saying, that he has not nor will look over the need of a single sheep in his plot in his flock further he is always able and willing to supply that which is truly needful if you are wrestling with a physical need or you are wrestling with a spiritual frustration it is not a demonstration that the shepherd is failing no it is far more likely that it is a demonstration in the midst of 
frustration and anger and anxiety that we truly do not believe that our shepherd is perfect. Listen to what Matthew Henry said concerning this. I shall be supplied with whatever I need. And if I have not everything I desire, I may conclude it is either not fit for me or not good for me, or I shall have it in due time. You see, when we are confessing the reality that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, what the ultimate confession is, is that I am not looking for, want, for someone else to lead me and to guide me. I understand that the shepherd that I am following behind, the shepherd who is leading me, who bought me with his blood, is a perfect shepherd. And wherever he leads me, it is good for me. It is good for me. It is needful for me. And perhaps it is in this moment you say, ah, but he has led me through difficulty and trial and tribulation only for a little while. And if necessary, says first Peter one, only for a little while. And if necessary, essentially what you're saying is "Ah, I didn't really need this. Well, let me encourage you for a moment. The omniscient God who is your good shepherd said you needed it. And to that, there is room for great confidence. I need not look to myself, foolish sheep though I be, and say, hey, shepherd, why don't you lead me that way? We're sheep. Our perspective is so minimal. Our perspective does not include difficulty or trial and tribulation. I imagine not one of us has ever said, ah, we need to go through the valley of the shadow of death. And yet, our shepherd has said multiple times, you need to go through trial and tribulation as a demonstration of discipline so that you might grow into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. But, you know, what does he know? No, saints, we echo and I affirm the words of Matthew Henry. I shall be supplied with whatever I need. And if I have not everything I desire, I may conclude it is either not fit for me, meaning it is not good for me. And ultimately, if I do need it, I shall have it in due time. Saints, when we say the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It is a confession of trust. It is saying he is right. He is always right. And as he is always right, I can always go about saying it matters not what field I am standing in, I shall not want. And so you thirst and you say, ah, the good shepherd has led me here. And so you hunger and you say, ah, the good shepherd has led me here. I know that it's only for a little while and it's only if necessary. And perhaps it is you sit in the midst of the greatest emotional pain. Then you can say with absolute confidence, the Lord has led me here for my good. He is the good shepherd and we shall not want, nor should we lay a charge against him when we want. God forbid it. What arrogance does a sheep have to look at the shepherd and say, no, no. We say, I shall not want. I bow humbly to your leadership, wisdom, and protection. Now, what does that leadership ultimately look like? Where has he led us? And so here's my hope as we walk through this next section is that there will be a sweetness to where he has led us so that when he takes you into the valley of the shadow of death, you know that that sweet, merciful, and gracious, and good shepherd that has been leading you, is leading you there with a wonderful intention. So what does the text say? It says, he makes me lie down in green pastures. First, hear me, he leads us to this green pasture of life and peace only through himself. 
How do you arrive, sheep, who are dead in your trespasses and sins, who are alienated and hostile to God? How do you arrive in his fold? How do you arrive under his headship, under his leadership? How is it that he brings you safely to such wonderful pasture? Listen to what John 10, 9 says. I am the door. Uniquely, this I am statement seems to be rather intertwined with the statement of I am the good shepherd. As a matter of fact, they land ultimately in between each other in an illustrative sense. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. How is it that you entered into such wonderful pasture? You came through the door. And you came through the door that was opened by the Lord Jesus Christ that he led you straight through by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the only means of entry into Christ's fold. You cannot jump fences. You cannot make your own way. There is one door. There is one means of entry. And Jesus Christ says, I am the door. And as you enter into that door, as you enter in through the, the veil, the new veil that is his flesh, you come into such wonderful and beautiful pastures. How can I rest? Because he makes me lie down in green pastures and he has made that entrance available to me and brought me through it. Secondly, this pasture is for the nourishment of his flock. Listen to what Gil says on this. These green pastures may be meant by the covenant of grace, its blessings and promises, where there is delicious feeding. Likewise, the fullness of grace in Christ from which grace for grace is received. Also, the flesh and blood, righteousness and sacrifice of Christ, which faith is led unto and lives upon and is refreshed and invigorated by, to which may be added the doctrines of the gospel with which Christ's under shepherd feed his lambs and sheep, there being in them milk for babes and meat for strong ones. First and foremost, we must say, what are these green pastures that we come into to be nourished by. We come in first and foremost to a field of full grace. Full grace. These sheep wonder and they fail and they're weak and yet they are laid down. They are placed at rest in this wonderful field and say, eat and be full. Where and what are we eating upon? We are eating upon the fullness of grace that is in Christ Jesus. John makes it abundantly clear when Christ comes, it's grace upon grace. And here, saints, is where we dwell. And here, saints, is where we eat. And further, not only do we come into the fullness of this grace, but we come feasting upon the flesh and the blood of Christ. And I do not mean this in some transubstantiation way. Instead, I mean that there is a natural rhythm in entering into the wonderful field of grace that is the new covenant in which we partake of Christ daily. As sheep eat grass, so saints come to Christ. And as we come to Christ, we feast upon him and we never find him wanting. There's always something fresh and wonderful to be had. There's always a thrill of the soul to be enjoyed as we enjoy Christ himself because he is truly the inexhaustible God who is our good shepherd. We come to this field and we eat and we drink. And then further in this field, there is righteousness super abundant. Why do you deserve to be there? How is it that you came into this blessed place? Saints, you do not go into this field so that you might be made more righteous. You come into this field and it is righteousness for you. It has been offered to you, clothed you, meaning that when you rest there, this is your field. It's your field because the Savior bought it for you. It's your field because he has led you here and he is the sovereign and supreme shepherd. And he has brought you to rest in this super abundant righteousness that is always abounding and always superseding even our sins. And I will add one Last one, rather humbly. 
In this field, there are under shepherds serving the chief shepherd. And you know, there are a couple of terms that are scary to me. Husband is a scary term. Husband is a fearful term. The same way I imagine that king to David was a fearful term. In the same way that I imagine shepherd was a fearful term. Why? Because the reality is that these are meant to mimic their shadow, their substance. Husbands, the reason it's fearful for you to call yourself and to name yourself husband is because you are meant to be a representative of Christ in your home because he is the true groom. And under shepherds, pastors, it is our intention not to come up with new methodology, but instead to mimic the chief shepherd. Meaning that it is our intention and aim to lay out to you fullness of grace, to lay out to you the flesh and blood of Christ, to lay out to you righteousness, super abundant, found in him and in him alone. And we take this office very, very weightily. There is great gravity in it as we aim to mimic the chief shepherd of the soul. And yet we say with great confidence that God has given under shepherds to the care of saints as they pilgrim home. And so what are we doing in the midst of this? We are simply longing to imitate our chief shepherd. What wonderful, wonderful fields. And if I were to articulate this in some simplistic way, he brings us into the fields of the church. And he tells us, come, come together as the flock of God. Be warm and well-fed. Feast upon Christ. Delight in him. Be reminded of his righteousness. Come and enjoy that you might be full. So he brings us in. He causes us to rest. He, he makes me lie down in green pastures. And then forward, he says, he leads me beside still waters. What should we glean from he leads me beside still waters? There is an emphasis of this word still. And it could perhaps better be translated, he leads me beside waters of peace. And I'm convinced that this peace is meant to be a point of restfulness. Meaning that when the flock would begin to make its way toward tumultuous waters, it would be a great danger to them as they made their way because one wrong slip and the sheep is gone. But it is not so with our chief shepherd. He does not lead us to tumultuous waters. Instead, he leads us to waters of peace, still, fresh, wonderful waters that ultimately will restore the soul of the flock of God. And I think there's a beautiful occurrence of this that we find in the New Testament in John chapter 4. In John chapter 4, I would imagine all of you are familiar with the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. But in John chapter 4, starting in verse 13, it says this, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. Listen, listen to her response. Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and simultaneously I will not have to come here again. What does she want for her soul? She not only wants the water that will well up to eternal life that she might never thirst, but simultaneously she wants to rest from her labor no longer does she want to climb to this well. Instead, what she desires is that she might partake of something that is truly satisfying, that is truly restorative to the soul. And that is the very thing that the good shepherd leads his people to. He leads them to still peaceful waters that they might 
drink and be satisfied and ultimately then find rest in that which he has provided. And it is quite clear from the pages of scripture that it is not just first and foremost eternal life that floods into the soul, but it is the spirit of God that floods into the soul and offers true satisfaction and rest as it communicates the wonderful graces that are in Christ Jesus. He is truly the seal of the soul that makes clear that we have received the deposit, therefore we will receive the full inheritance. And so what do we do? We go on resting because he is provided for us. He has satisfied both our hunger and our thirst. And ultimately in this, he has restored our soul. In the midst of feeling tired and frail and weak, and as you have been led through various paths, through feeble and frail shepherds, the good shepherd says, come unto me and rest. Come unto me. I will satisfy every need. I will feed your belly. I will, I will satisfy your thirst. And I will not do so for a moment. I will do so forever. And this restoring of the soul is not only a paramount moment in the life of the Christian flowing from the chief shepherd. It is a continual process in which he continues to satisfy, continues to feed, continues to satisfy even our thirsting mouths. And he always does so all, sufficient, all sufficiently. And so we see him satisfied. We see him demonstrate his good shepherdness and the feeding of the belly and, and satisfying our thirst. And then there is this next phrase. He says this, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. First, we understand that the path of righteousness in which he leads us, he has first trod as the lamb of God. This path of righteousness is the one that he himself paid as he was making his way to the cross to be the sacrificial lamb. And he leads us in this wonderful path. Though it be a path of great sorrow for him, it is a path of great victory for his sheep. And so what do we do? We follow our good shepherd knowing that he has made this way for us. And not only has he made this way for us, he has given us that which he merited on the path. He clothes us with that perfect righteousness. He leads us to demonstrate to us the wonderful work that he has done to show us his manner of life, to see how he has filled the cup of righteousness full, to see how he has perfectly in every step of his life fulfilled this road. And then he tells us that he will lead us in it. And we do not say that this is just a recognition or just a statement of the imputed righteousness that he grants us. But it is true, saints, that the Christian is led to a righteous manner of life. That there is a distinctness, is there not? That there is something different from the way in which we live. Why? Because Christ has given us his perfect righteousness, which does a great work in the soul. But simultaneously, as we see him as king and shepherd, it is our aim to imitate our king and shepherd, to follow him foot for foot, step for step. And here's the danger in this. It is a great danger to say, Lord, shepherd me, lay down your life for me, keep me, protect me from the evil one, lay out a table for me, fill my cup, anoint my head with oil. It's a great danger to say that. And then out of the very same mouth say, Lord, shepherd me, but not in my marriage, not in my private moments, not at work, not before my parents, not in my singleness, not in my emotional or mental health, and not in how I deal with others who differ from me. This is double speak at best. It nears a blasphemous perception of our shepherd. No, we say, Lord, shepherd me. Hush after that. 
Lead me. All the benefits that come from you, praise be to God. The righteousness that clothes me, praise be to God. And I understand that your leadership in my marriage, in my singleness, in my work, in my difficulties, in my trials and tribulations, those are just as sweet. And they're meant to be just as sweet because they drive us more deeply to our shepherd. They drive us to him that we might enjoy him all the fuller. And it also reminds us that we are sheep in need. Saints, we're in sheep of need in the midst that he must lay down his life for us. But simultaneously, we are sheep in need of his leadership. Christ has not ceased to be the head of the church. He maintains this office even to this day. He leads it. Christ does not cease to be Lord of your life when he pays your sin debt and clothes you with righteousness. He has purchased you. He leads you in paths of righteousness, saints. We are fools to say we will not follow. No. He is our shepherd. And we confess this and we say all the wonderful benefits of being in Christ, one of the sweetest benefits of being in Christ is because of his work, we are free to follow faithfully. When before, our eyes were dead to him. We did not see him as sweet. We saw him as an enemy. We were haters of God and we would have been the wolves that would have devoured this good shepherd if he was not mightier than we. And so we say with absolute confidence, he leads me in paths of righteousness. Why does he do this? Every single phrase in Psalm 23 is linked to this simple one in verse 3. For his name's sake. To the Christian, this is beautiful. To the unbeliever, it is an offense. Why? Because the chief joy of the Christian is that Christ would be made much of. The chief joy of the Christian, the one who understands and sees the beauty of Jesus is that every tongue would sing his praise. They look forward to the day when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess him as such. Which means that as he leads you near paths of peaceful waters and he places you in pastures of green grass for you to enjoy, he is to be magnified. It is for his name's sake. And when he takes you through the valley of the shadow of death, when he leads you in tribulation and trial, it is for his name's sake. And that is a reason for great confidence. Now, one of the reasons it is ground for great confidence is because amazingly, amazingly, this good shepherd has tied his faithfulness to seeing you brought home. And he is jealous for his name. There will not be one who will say, ah, but see, he failed here. No, he has never failed, nor will he ever fail. All that was given to him, he bought all that he bought, he keeps. And he will see that each one are brought safely home. I knew I should have broke this up into two sermons. I got a lot left. All right, the comfort of the shepherd in the midst of the valley. What is the valley of the shadow of death? Pressing forward. First, there are clear references, meaning that there's a specific place that David had in mind, meaning that there's something he's thinking of that he would have found great terror in. Now, to progress a little bit further here, some would say this refers specifically to the hours of death itself. I really don't think that that's what he's considering here, primarily because it's most likely that David wrote this while he was still pretty far from death and the sufferings that would ultimately lead him to death. I actually am convinced that what's being laid out here is a representative or a representation of the trials and tribulations that take place in life as we make our way to that final day. Regardless, regardless of where you land on that, the primary point remains 
remains the same. Meaning that as you make your way through the valley of the shadow of death, there should not be fear. There should not be fear. Listen to what he kind of goes forward in saying in verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, what should there not be fear of so that we can answer the question of why we should have no fear of it first? Fears from without meaning. I am not afraid of the dangers that might make their way to me as I'm trekking through the valley of the shadow of death. I have no expectation that my good shepherd will allow those evils from without to conquer me. This is why Romans 8 is so sweet. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We will be brought safely home. And as the sheep would follow the shepherd through this difficult valley, ultimately they rested knowing that the shepherd would protect them from evils that would come to assail them. So as wolves begin to assault the sheep, the shepherd would quickly come and dispatch them. We see David even make reference to the various creatures that he had killed in the midst of his protection, all creatures that were far greater than him. Evils from without are not to be feared. Further, evils from within. I do not want to discredit this point. I want to make it clear that he says no evil. That means the evils from outside that would wage war against you and simultaneously those intrinsic evils. Saints, it is a true reality that we live in a strange in-between where we have been brought from death to life and we live in Christ in the truest sense of the word, but the old man still lives. Here's the beauty of our good shepherd. He is not only able to protect us from the evils without as a human shepherd could, he is able to protect us and to release fear from us as he protects us from evils within. And perhaps this is the one that you most regularly struggle with. You deal with the fear of your own sin. You deal with past trespasses. You deal with the present wrestling of sin, waging war against the flesh. But the beauty is that I know that my good shepherd is not hindered from doing war in my own soul. Instead, I know that he is actively engaged in such a task by the power of the spirit. That's why Romans 8 explicitly says, put to death the misdeeds of the flesh by the spirit. Apart from that spirit, your flesh would be alive and well. He is a good shepherd and he wages war both outside and inside the man. Now, he goes forward and he says, well, well, these two things are my meditation as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. First, what is the comfort? Our good shepherd is with us. He is our faithful high priest. Oh, how sweet it is to link this not to a presence that is just a nearness, though that is sweet and worthy of worship. But when we say our shepherd is with us, there is a unique eminence that not only is he with us, he came like us. That he leads us as the true God, true man. That he leads us as this perfect and wonderful shepherd. He is with us. He is ever present. He does not forsake us. As a matter of fact, the conclusion of the gospels is I am with you always. And saints, what a great confidence knowing that our shepherd never abandons us. It matters not how difficult or how how turbulent life is. Our good shepherd is always present. He is near to us in the midst of this. Always near, always close. Further, his rod and his staff comfort us. This ultimately meaning the task, the, the instrument of his task. And I want to lay this out somewhat briefly because I think there's some debate on what the rod was used for and what the staff was used for. But all are mixed up in the central task of the shepherd. 
Basically, there was this concept of a rod being placed over uh, the sheep and they would count as they made their way in. The rod was purposed to count the sheep, to essentially say, I have brought every single one out of the valley of the shadow of death. I have not lost a single sheep. I count the very same number that I counted as they made their way in. But this good shepherd does not count by numbers, but with names. He knows them all. He brings them safely home and he does so with perfection. And further, he has the rod and the staff with the intention to drive and to guide his sheep. I told a couple of young men this week, it is sweet to know that this staff has been round my neck before. And the whole intention of this wonderful staff of God is that it drug me back to fidelity in the midst of my infidelity. It reminded me that my good shepherd is not willing to permit to see me go astray. He says, no, you're coming with me. And saints, we rejoice in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that we will make it safely home, that God will enable us to persevere. But let me tell you something. There is some unique sweetness to the preservation of the saints. You're not going to the left or to the right. You're coming behind me and we're going home. And so he disciplines, he guides. And then simultaneously that rod would every so often be used to beat the backside of sheep that they would go appropriately. Praise be to God. The shepherd, even in the midst of this task, is demonstrating something that we find later on in the book of Hebrews, that the Lord chastens those whom he loves. He disciplines us so that we might have an appropriate pace in the midst of our Christian life. And then finally, he has the rod and the staff to kill. I love that word, to kill the predator, to wage war against him. Saints, hear me. The shepherd is meant to be this gentle, kind meek man until it is time to make war. And so it is with our good shepherd. You read through the gospel saints and you're like, man, you see his gentleness. He is meek and lowly of heart. And you read through Revelation and you're like, he's the lion of Judah. It is sweet to know that this rod that has every so often struck our backside that we might, we might press forward is often the very same rod that he will crush all of his enemies. Simultaneously, his enemies are our enemies. And so we need not fear. We have a good shepherd. And then this final phrasing is a summary, if you will, of the entire psalm. And I'm going to lay this out rather quickly to get to the conclusion. But this is the the text, starting in verse 5, making our way through verse 6. You prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You just want to wrap it. The good shepherd prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. This is ultimately noting the security and the comfort of the flock provided by the shepherd. It's a bad time to eat when your enemies are present. It's a bad time to eat. Saints, this is how we eat every day. Every single day, the Lord prepares a meal for us before our enemies. We have not arrived as of yet. It's the reason that Romans 16 tells us that the church will one day crush the head of the serpent. It's because we will arrive safely home. All of our enemies will be placed out of reach. They will never be allowed to harm us ever again. But even so now, we rest comfortably with great security knowing that our good shepherd is watching us. And as he watches us, we safely eat knowing that these enemies, those wicked men who would desire to overtake us will not truly reach us because he is the good shepherd and he will beat them to death before he allows them to take us. Further, the good shepherd anoints the head of his sheep with oil. Listen to Psalm 45, verse 7. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This wonderful oil that we are speaking of here, it finds symbols all throughout the scriptures. Perhaps the one that is most notable is the Holy Spirit of God anointing and indwelling the saint. What beautiful truth is it to know that as we are his shepherd, he has anointed us with oil, not just externally, but internally, that he has granted us an oil of gladness in the spirit of God, that he has anointed us not only to be his sheep, but ultimately to live faithfully in this world. As we press, as we, as we press forward, as we pilgrimage here below, and we will arrive safely home, this oil of gladness is laid upon us. Further, the good shepherd fills the sheep's cup to overflowing, thus noting the endlessness, inexhaustible blessing that flows from the good shepherd to us, that he is actively caring and bestowing blessing upon blessing upon blessing. We have already heard it prayed from that text in 1 Peter that the inheritance that we have is, is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven from you. The, the, the the reality is that we, we cannot even fully grasp the wonderful blessings that are found in Christ. Even when we go to passages like Romans 8, when it tells us we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, that is an unfathomable, foolish verse if it was not penned by the Holy Spirit of God. And what is it conveying to us? It is conveying to us that all the riches of Christ, all the, all the things that he has merited, all the blessings that he has merited are poured into our cup and our cup simply endlessly overflows. This is the good shepherd's ministry to us. Further, the two great confidences of Christ's sheep, meaning as we're reaching the end, the conclusion of the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does that mean as we begin to consider the end of our lives, meaning the manner and the conclusion of it? The two great confidences are first, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You know, the word surely there can also be translated only. And in the ESV, I wish it was. Only. Because, saints, he has never led you to evil. He has, as a matter of fact, led you out of wrath into mercy. And perhaps it is that you would say, ah, but there's situations and circumstances in my life that I don't really feel like the goodness of God and the mercy of God are coming. Saints, what? The mercy of God rests upon you. It was bought for you by the Lord Jesus Christ. Only mercy comes your way. Does his disciplining hand come? Yes, we call that a mercy. Is scripture not abundantly clear that it is an expression of love to discipline, that is an expression of love to bring people through difficulty and teach them and train them in the midst of that? And you're telling me that your good shepherd hasn't been good to you? You can say that it's not just goodness and mercy that have followed me all my days. I've had tribulation and distress. Most certainly, saints, we recognize that they're tribulation and distress, but we must always place them in the category that it is the goodness and mercy of God that delivers it. And hear me, some of you perhaps are going through absolute horrendous moments in life that you are thinking about loss and pain and suffering. Hear me, even in the midst of this, God is good and merciful. You have not received what you deserve, mercy. His goodness, every blessing that comes your way, you did not merit. It is literally his goodness poured out. You have a cup overflowing. And in the midst of the greatest possible pain and loss, you do well to say, Only goodness and mercy, only, here it is before me, in the man Christ Jesus as he leads me as the good shepherd. Only goodness. 
Finally, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We do not look forward enough. We don't. We don't. One of the reasons that we have such difficulty in the midst of seeing a Christian lost, meaning seeing a Christian die, draw his last breath, one of the reasons that we do not mourn like Christians is because we do not look forward enough. One of the reasons that we fear death, that we have such a tight grasp on the world is because we do not look forward enough. You think this is it. This is 77 years-ish. And yet before us is eternity, a world of love. And saints, we say with absolute confidence, even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, goodness and mercy, follow me. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Take my life, steal my last breath and bring me into a world of love where I dwell with Christ forever. He has brought me safely home. All you have done is prove his fidelity. Saints, we say, surely goodness and mercy, and we have great confidence that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And David even says, one thing I desire is that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all my days. Saints, this should be our singular desire of life. As we are following him, we know the final destination. And then if I could maybe wrap this up, what is the ground of such confidence? Meaning, what is the ground of saying, surely, surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord all my days? It is not in the goodness and the strength and the ability of sheep. It's not. It's not in your goodness. It's not in your ability. It's not in your strength. It is in the sufficiency of the shepherd. The shepherd brings you home. He does not fail. He has never failed. He has never lost one. Throughout, really, from John 10 to John 17, the overarching premise is, I'm not losing one of them. And he has kept each and every single one of them. And in the midst of this, we must say, our shepherd is not only good, he is sufficient. He is perfect. He is inerrant. He is altogether perfect. That way I shall not ever want. And it's my hope, saint, that in the midst of this, you can say with boundless confidence, in the, in the midst of the most blessed moments, in the most trying, in the midst of your own failing and sinning, in the midst of your greatest obedience, in the midst of your greatest sufferings and anguish, and even as you are aiming to draw your last breath, knowing that it is on the horizon, that we should be able to say boldly, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Let's pray together.